0: Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine & More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, welcome to Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl, and I'm sitting across from my awesome wife, Stephanie Sovendahl.
1: Hello, hello, everyone. Thanks to everyone
0: out there who sent us comments. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so if you have anything you want us to talk about or comments on our previous episodes, feel free to email me at shannon at matchonafire.com. Um, I'm real excited next week because on May 12th, my book is coming out. It's called Fragile, Beauty and Chaos, Grace and Tragedy, and the Hope that Lives in Between. I spent a lot of time writing this book, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. So go check it out on Amazon.com or through my website. Today, we have a special guest on. I know we talk about people that are in the trenches and treating this COVID-19. And yeah, we're going to talk about COVID-19 again today because that's all we can talk about. But we talk about people in the trenches and really, to me, there's a group of people that we haven't talked a lot about that are truly in the trenches, and they're truly probably in one of the most risky positions there there is, and that's our respiratory therapists. They're the ones who are managing ventilators, managing the sickest patients from a respiratory standpoint, which is the primary problem with these COVID patients. So I thought it would be a good idea to have a respiratory therapist on, and I'm stoked to introduce Melissa Versman. Hi, Melissa.
2: Hi, guys. How are you?
0: We're awesome. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, this is awesome.
0: So Melissa Versman works with me at Medivac. She's a flight medic there. She's also a respiratory therapist and a flight medic for the Children's Hospital in Denver. So a lot of good experience from her end. And I want to pick her brain a little bit on how they're not only treating kids, but how we treat adults with respiratory symptoms as well. i
1: we have had the privilege of listening to Melissa lecture before. I think you guys are in for a real treat. She is a fascinating educator, a wealth of knowledge, and just it's, it's so great with her delivery and her experience. And sharing that with everyone so thank you again for being here
0: yeah thanks for coming on i wanted to start by just kind of talking about a lot of comments that i'm reading in the media and people are really frustrated with the models that are out there they're frustrated with you know how these models predict how many patients we're going to have how many icu beds we're going to use how many ventilators we're going to use and they're frustrating because some are really low and some are really high and we we seem to miss the mark and really the comment i want to make on this is the models aren't wrong the models are actually really efficient models. It just matters what numbers you're putting into those models. And we have limited data right now on really the things that are important to figure out the progression of this disease and how long we're going to be isolated and all of these things that we have questions about. It's a matter of lack of data. And it's not a problem with the model, it's what we're plugging into that model. For example, if we talk about the number of asymptomatic patients, I went and looked this up. I went to the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine from Oxford, and they did a literature survey of all the patients, That were asymptomatic in various studies, and they had a range of five to 80%. When I tell you that the range that they gave me in this this research literature review is five to 80%, what's that tell you?
1: Well, 80% scares me a bit because it's a big number. We're not always going to be as diligent for that asymptomatic patient as far as our PPE goes. So it's a big range.
0: Yeah. It shows, shows that we just don't know the number. And even the high or the low It can be good or bad, meaning if 80% of the patients are asymptomatic, that might be good, right? That means that most of us can get COVID-19 and 80% of us don't even know we have it, right? So that's actually maybe a good thing overall, but it also then affects the rate at which we're spreading that virus to maybe people at risk that are then going to have complications. So again, it's it's a big statistical problem kind of on how you're looking at this stuff. And really, when we plug these numbers in to the models, we can get wide ranges of answers and it's confusing and it's scary. And I did read a nice article by Dr. Peter Atiyah. He has a great podcast out there, but he was kind of referencing the models and, and how they look and what numbers we get. And really his take-home point was, is that you know the models do what they're supposed to do. They, they crunch some numbers and then they spit out an answer. The problem is, is we don't know what numbers to put in there. And it's appropriate for us, when this pandemic started, to take a time out, man, to say, we need to figure out what to plug into these equations. And that might be, in my mind, what a big failure is is that we took a timeout. We we had everyone go into isolation, which I think is the right move. But we should have used that time to actually figure out what, you know, as the analogy that Peter Atia used, you gotta figure out what the other team's doing. Like you take a timeout in the first quarter because they just scored two touchdowns. You don't just sit on the bench do nothing, right? You try to figure out what they did. And then you come back and you can actually have a defense against that. And so that's really what these models are all about. And you know, I was planning on talking about various rates and numbers, but I think it's confusing because there's just too many
1: numbers.
2: You're right. They're those That wide range of numbers is a really scary situation, but I'm really lucky to work at a teaching facility that I do because um, we're trying to figure out a little bit more information about that. So every kid that comes through the door is getting tested, whether they have respiratory symptoms or not, that's really building a database for us to be able to contribute Nationally and internationally, with these studies, and be able to say, you know, are these kids carriers? Do they have antibodies? Why is it not affecting these kids? Because we're definitely seeing that our kids are not getting very severe symptoms, if any at all. And even our critically ill kids are surprising us when they first come through the door. You know, a lot of our immunocompromised kids are coming in for routine blood draws, and we're catching a fever when they show up. And then maybe 10 days later, they're getting sick. So this is really throwing us for a loop, but we're trying to extrapolate as much data as we can to be able to contribute and give some more data to these kind of numbers.
0: And you know, we do have some numbers on percent hospitalized for kids and kids less than 10. I mean, essentially they're not hospitalized for COVID. So again, they can catch COVID, but they're not hospitalized for COVID. And that's interesting. The number that that I worry about as well when we look at this is the number of critically ill patients, because that's what overwhelms the system. You know, that's when we talk about how many ICU beds do we have, how many ventilators do we have? How many awesome Melissa Versman respiratory therapists do we have to work those ventilators? That's the number that really matters. And we can look at some data that we have from various countries. So in China, about 7 to 26% of patients were ICU patients. And in Italy, about 5 to 12% of patients were ICU patients. In Washington, about 20 to 31% were ICU patients. And that gives you, like, that's what's really drawing the resource. If we have 800,000 cases in the US, and say 10 10% of those are in the ICU that's 80,000 ICU beds we need right so that's the number that's critical because that will really overwhelm the system when this started when we started seeing in the news this new virus and then we named it covid-19 and we were really focusing in on these respiratory problems that the patients were having what was going through your mind like what were you thinking your near future life was going to look like
2: I pictured the Ebola outbreak (laughs) and how we had to participate in the Ebola team trainings. I, like I was joking with you guys before, like now I'm gonna have to start wearing an N95 all the time. And then it really hit home that I have a eight-year-old with asthma. When we had just gotten back on March 1st from Disney World from vacation, my daughter had gotten pneumonia right after that. So then I had wondered, did she have it? Um, And we didn't know, but none of us got sick. But I just started to really freak out about how am I going to do my job safely and then not bring it home to my family. And it's been one of the first times I've ever been really nervous to go to work. I just had... I'm, I'm really lucky that all the places I've worked have really prioritized our PPE, given us a lot of options. But I was real, real nervous because when I was a part of the H1N1 outbreak... I was nervous seeing all the patients that didn't have the comorbidity. So that immediately makes you think of your children when you do those types of calls and your husbands and wives and stuff like that. So I really feared for my
1: family, which is not something I normally do. Well, thank you so much for continuing to show up. So many people need your talent. So thank you for continuing to show up, Melissa.
2: Well, I have a great team that, you know, if if I needed a day off, my admin and, and the rest of my team definitely picked up the slack for me if we were just hitting a mental wall and things like that. So I'm really lucky where
0: I work. Yeah. I mean, it definitely adds it as all the people listening to this podcast know, that's why you listen to this podcast because you do this job. It definitely takes a toll like wearing the PPE and worried about your family and stuff. It's it, I'm more tired than I thought I would be, you know, kind of moving forward. Let's talk about the progression of the disease zone and get into where we really need people like Melissa taking care of our patients. So normally people catch COVID if they have symptoms they can start to feel short of breath at around 6.5 days. That's kind of the, the average. And then what we've seen for those sick patients is they kind of rapidly decrease after that, meaning in the next two and a half days, they just go downhill. And it can happen very quickly where they're really short of breath, and then they suddenly become super dysmic and are having a lot of trouble oxygenating.
2: And that's really what we've seen is that you know patients say they feel better, and then they tend to kind of fall off that cliff really quickly. Luckily, a lot of the patients that um, say they feel better and then fall off the cliff are luckily still admitted to the hospital. So we haven't seen a ton of emergent things come through the ED. They've already been admitted. They're a high index of suspicion based on their um, um, immunocompromised status and things like that. So we've been a little lucky at Children's to catch them.
0: I mean, I think that's the stressful part of being a medical director. We have you know, protocols and things in place to to leave COVID patients at home, right? So if you're not sick, let's just leave you at home. But then I'm giving a lecture here on a podcast that says, oh, they can rapidly get worse. And that certainly gives me pause when I have told someone to stay at home and now, you know, they can get a lot worse and it can happen quickly. I read a an article in the paper that was by a ER doc that got sick and they were talking about how they were, had the normal symptoms. And then they started to get really short of breath. And at night, it was much worse. Like you thought you got better in the morning. And then at night, you got really dysmic, and you know he was commenting that it was so stressful because he was like, "Am I going off the cliff? Like, am I on that pathway to go get ventilated now?" And obviously, the fear associated with that was what you were speaking with earlier in the podcast.
2: Yeah, and if anybody hasn't read it, there's a children's doc from Denver, an emergency medicine doctor that um, got it, and he has told his story on EMS World, and um, that's basically what he says is that he was at home, he was monitoring his pulse ox. Op- he was hanging out ninety one, ninety two, which he knows isn't great, but he's you know hoping that he can just kind of ride it out. And then around day ten, he said he started to get really short of breath at night, and then he realized his pulse ox was eighty four percent. And then he's realizing you know he can't even go in. It's time to go get his wife, go to the hospital, and he's like, I can't even go in and kiss my kids goodbye, you know, and or should I or should I not? And is this the last time I'm walking down the stairs like? It's just really scary when you get to that point and you're 10, 12 days into this. Now you're going to the hospital and you know what's happening to these patients. So just really, it's really spooky right now.
0: So let's get into the reason you're here. Let's talk about the pathophysiology of COVID patients and and what's the respiratory failure pathophysiology in COVID patients. Do you want to give us just a general overview of your thoughts, Melissa?
2: Respiratory failure, what I've been seeing and what I've been talking about and And all the literature coming out of like New York and Italy and stuff is that there's really two types of these patients. So there are patients that come in with those comorbidities and they follow that normal ARDS kind of cascade that happens with respiratory failure. So they, you know, have the, you know, cytokine release and the big inflammatory response, and then they their airways get flooded with mucus, and then they can't oxygenate or ventilate. There are a percentage, probably 40 to 50 if you look at the models that are acting like they're supposed to when they have ARDS. But then there's this whole separate one and I've been kind of calling it dry ARDS or dry ARDS where it's um, they're mimicking like a chemical pneumonitis kind of. So um, those are types of patients that we're seeing them treat um, a lot more non-invasively and cautiously. And they're having really good outcomes with that versus when they see them and they're hurrying up to intubate them and things like that. So That pathophysiology is really throwing us for a loop because we've gotten really good, I think, at treating ARDS patients, but this is something new to us and it's not reacting normally to our treatment. And we'll get into
0: that a little bit um, here moving forward, but I want to just go back and and circle back so that people listening, let's let's go back and define ARDS just so people know what we're talking about. And I'm going to read you a definition and then I'll get Melissa's input. So kind of a book definition of this. So acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, is a consequence of an alveolar injury producing diffuse alveolar damage. The injury causes release of pro-inflammatory cytokines such as tumor necrosis factor, interleukins, and cytokines. These cytokines recruit neutrophils to the lungs where they become activated and release toxic mediators that damage the capillary endothelium and alveolar epithelium. Melissa, that is a mouthful for people listening to a podcast. Do you want to paraphrase that? What is is ARDS to you? What is ARDS to you?
2: So it's massive alveolar damage. So we know that our alveoli are the air sacs that kind of mediate the oxygen and CO2 exchange, but we need our alveoli to interface with our alveolar capillary membrane. So where that gas exchange takes place and the blood supply um, to your lungs happens. So you got two... A couple different things going on there. Not only is it damaging all those type 2 cells and the surfactant cells in there, so you're not having good compliance in your lungs, it's ruining your alveoli. So it's taking those nice little balloons and just ruining them and they become little floppy air sacs. And then it's causing a big separation. So when I think about your alveoli, it looks like a balloon that's supposed to be huddled up right next to that alveolar capillary membrane. And with all that leaky fluid, it's causing this separation to occur. And without those two things being, having good contact, you're not getting good gas exchange between those things.
0: So I, I totally agree that you know my definition for that, for that wordy definition would be acute diffuse inflammatory lung injury. And that can come from a lot of different reasons, right? We have ARDS when you have pancreatitis sometimes. We have ARDS after you get cardiothoracic surgery. You can have ARDS after you have pneumonia. So all of those things can cause you to have ARDS. This syndrome that we're seeing, you get infected with COVID-19, and then that is the inciting event that then causes you to have ARDS. And really what Melissa was talking about was, in order for gas exchange to occur, we need to bring the air into contact with the blood. And the way that that happens is we bring air into our alveoli, and then through a very thin membrane, that diffuses across. So the oxygen diffuses from the air that we breathe in into the blood, and the carbon dioxide that's in the blood diffuses across into the alveoli space. And then we have ventilation, right? We have oxygen coming in for oxygenation and blowing out CO2, which is our ventilation. And for that to occur, we need to have that membrane be super thin. And the space needs to be, you know, microns. And if we damage that space and it becomes inflamed and we bring tissue into there and fluid into there, and then fluid leaks into the alveoli, we can't diffuse the molecules of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And that's what gets us into this problem. I have seen some things I've read in, in the newspaper. So not medical articles, but doctors have said, Oh, this is like HAPE, which is high altitude pulmonary edema, or this is not like ARDS. But really, what I would say is it is like ARDS with just some modifications. It's slightly different than what we see with a normal ARDS patient. And there is, you know, criteria that that's out there to, to define ARDS. And I won't go through it because it's kind of boring, but the COVID 19 infection with the subsequent pulmonary disease that we're seeing does meet the definition of ARDS, kind of from the Berlin Berlin definition, if you want to go look that up. The other thing to, to keep in mind is Melissa threw out a bunch of words there about surfactant and how the stuff's diffusing. And really, when I was talking about that alveoli being right next to the blood flow, that capillary bed, what we need to do is the, the molecules need to diffuse back and forth but what happens is when that alveoli becomes damaged, there's a lot of surface tension on every balloon sac. The balloon sac wants to collapse on itself. And that's just a law of physics. That's Laplace's law. Laplace's law says that the pressure is equal to two times the tension of the wall divided by the radius. And what happens is because those little small sacs, that radius is so small, that's in the denominator of that equation, right? So it's inversely proportional to the pressure. As my radius of an alveoli gets small, the pressure goes way up, which causes those little air sacs to just fold on themselves. And Melissa said that in her description. She said they just become this floppy, not a balloon, but folded down on itself. The surfactant's job is to relieve that surface tension and it holds the alveoli open. So if we lose our production of surfactant or surfactants not around the alveoli, that just causes more likelihood of that sac to collapse. And then what we have is we have a fluid filled, sack or we have a collapse sack. And it doesn't matter how much oxygen tension I put in there. I can do 100% oxygen in there. The oxygen can't diffuse across. It's too big of a distance. There's liquid in there. There's too much space. And so that's why we get into this problem where now I'm turning up the oxygen to high and their oxygen saturation is not coming up because that's not what the problem is. The problem is all these sacks are compressed and flattened. Does that make sense Uh the way I said it, Melissa?
2: Yeah, that's really good. It just needs to, no matter what you do, as far as giving more oxygen, it's really a pressure. You have to restore that pressure gradient that was there. It's not really an oxygen problem, it's a pressure gradient problem, is how I tend to look at it.
0: So these patients, we were talking about the progression of the disease, six and a half days, they, you know, they had the, the sickness where they weren't feeling great, muscle aches, all that stuff. And then they got into more respiratory stress over the next 2.5 days. Say they went into ARDS. What we see in those patients is we see a profound hypoxic respiratory failure. And remember when we talk about respiratory failure, you can have a hypoxic respiratory failure, which means you're not having enough oxygen, or you can have a hypercapnia respiratory failure, which means your CO2 is through the roof. So think of a copd -er who can't get rid of their CO2, right? And they're confused and out of it, and they're not breathing well, and you measure their CO2 and it's at 80. That's supposed to be at 40, right? That's what their problem is. So... When we're talking about COVID-19 patients in ARDS, we're talking about hypoxic respiratory failure. Anything to add with that, Melissa?
2: No. And just when you're talking about that, and I always think about there's two kinds of those respiratory failure types of patients, I would almost always pick a hypercapnic respiratory failure patient. Um, That's going to be the easy thing to fix. These profound hypoxic patients are really where they put your skills to the test.
0: I'm debating just asking you quickly. So when we have a patient who's in hypercapnic respiratory failure, what are the parameters that you're adjusting on your ventilator? Just give them a quick rundown to deal with that that case.
2: So I'm looking at and I'm shooting for eight cc's per kilo for their tidal volume. Um, If I can't get that, I'll tolerate six cc's per kilo. So you have to do a calculation based on their ideal body weight. So their tidal volume and then their respiratory rate, those are going to be the two big things. And then when we get really far down into there, you can start to utilize PEEP to help with your ventilation. But your two quick ones are your tidal volume. You need to make sure you're putting enough volume in that chest and you're not causing atelectasis. And then you need to make sure quick way to blow it off is to increase your respiratory rate. But I see a lot of hypercapnic issues just from poor choices in what kind of tidal volume you're picking for your patient.
0: Yeah, so that that's kind of the take-home message that I want to get across. There's two, two parameters on the vent that we kind of initially address when someone has high CO2. We need to blow off that CO2, and the way that we can blow off that CO2 is through ventilation. Ventilation depends on respiratory rate and tidal volume. So we can kind of break it down that way. When we talk about patients that are in profound hypoxic respiratory th- failure, the ones that are more complicated to man- manage. What are the two kind of quick parameters you go to on your ventilator for that?
2: You're going to look at your PEEP, number one, and your FIO2. But really, my FIO2 is not really a factor at that point because you're probably already on 100%. So are you optimizing your PEEP? And then there's a couple other ways in there that you can mess with what kind of volume and the modes that you're using. So, But your two quick ones are your PEEP and your FIO2.
0: What Melissa was saying, when when we have a patient that's not having an oxygen saturation that we like, we reach for the oxygen knob and we turn up the oxygen. So that's the first thing that you're going to do. And once your oxygen knob is all the way up, the only other option, quick, quick option that you have when you're not a respiratory therapist doing all this stuff is PEEP. And we talk about PEEP all the time. PEEP is going to try to open up those alveoli. It's going to try to recruit more alveoli to allow us to exchange the gases in the lung. And that's why those two quick settings are what we look for.
1: For those... Agencies that do not have ventilators, and Melissa and or Shannon here, who don't have ventilators, we can probably also adjust some of the things we're doing if we're needing to take over ventilation for our patients. If we're using a BVM, you would encourage then peep valves if people have peep valves and and adding those onto their BVM if it's available?
2: Absolutely. That's been one of my big pushes for all the EMS communities I've been a part of is to encourage peep valves. is common use every day in the hospital. So um, I think that we're lagging behind a little bit in the EMS community, not prioritizing PEEP. Awesome. Thank you.
0: So as these people progress with their disease and they're having their hypoxic respiratory failure, they come into the hospital because they can't breathe. We start to do the workup. We do some quick lab tests. The lab tests really are looking for those inflammatory mediators. It's like a D dimer, ferritin, interleukin levels. They're just showing me that the patient is under this inflammatory stress. And if I were to get a picture of those patients, some of you have probably read online that you get this ground glass opacification that's bilateral. It's consistent with a viral pneumonia. And so you see that kind of at the lower lobes of the lung. And an interesting thing with this is that I had two patients on my last shift. They came in asymptomatic from COVID. The first patient had a kidney stone. He was like, I think I have a kidney stone. He was acting like a kidney stone. The second patient had, had back surgery recently, and he was concerned that he had an infection at the surgical site. Both of those patients got imaging, one for kidney stone, one for his back surgery. And both of those patients had essentially positive COVID imaging studies, meaning they had ground glass appearance opacities on their bilateral lower lobes. And really it speaks again to that first comment that we were making about asymptomatic patients coming in. You know, you, you just really need to wear your PPE because you don't know. I mean, the kidney stone patient had no fever, no respiratory complaint. He just was complaining of kidney stone pain. And then the this, this CT scan was just so obvious that he had what looked like COVID-19 that, that it was kind of really impressive to me to take that point home that we're doing the right thing when we're making sure that we're safe with all the patient contacts we have right now wearing PPE. So, Melissa, when they come into the hospital and, and I see the patient that looks sick, they look like they're hypoxic, and I'm going to admit them, what are kind of my first avenues of treatment? Meaning, let's, let's take people through... What is the progression of managing this patient's hypoxia and airway disease?
2: So when we see them come through like the ED doors, we're pretty astounded about how low their oxygen stats can actually be and still be mentating well. So that's always something I've thought of and something you've always taught us is that, you know, when are you going to intubate somebody? And it really, to me, has to do with that multi-organ dysfunction. When is their brain not getting oxygen? And these patients are acting appropriately. They do not look overly um, exacerbated as far as their respiratory distress goes, but they look very sick and their oxygen saturation show that and then their labs show that. You're just not seeing the physical assessment that you would expect on these types of patients. So we're very rapidly trying to put a lot of oxygen into their system. And um, we are using a lot of high flow techniques when we use that. And we've just kind of realized depending on what's going on in their comorbidities, like our asthma patients still really like non-invasive ventilation, but our patients with no comorbidities that are just coming in infected really just like our lower approach as far as our high flow nasal cannulas.
0: So I really like a couple things that you said there. The first is one of our big drivers of whether we're going to say, innovate somebody has always been the oxygen saturation. Like we kind of perseverate on that. We look at the oxygen saturation and say, oh, you know, is this too bad? I'm going to take control and, and put them on a ventilator. And really, when we look at this entity, the early recommendation said, hey, we should avoid some of the stuff that you're talking about, meaning let's avoid high flow oxygen. Let's aflo- avoid non invasive ventilation. Let's innovate these patients early. The reasons for that are we're going to protect the providers. They're going to rapidly progress down that pathway anyway, so let's go ahead and get them on the vent. We were concerned about the limited supply events, but really what it's come down to is that we just realized maybe that approach wasn't the best approach, right? That's why I want you to get into this high flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation is because we were initially taught in this COVID situation to just innovate these patients early, but now some of the, the new data is showing us that, man, maybe... Maybe we're barking up the wrong tree here. You know, the the World Health Organization recommends that we keep our patients' oxygen saturation above 90%. And that was kind of drives us when we're doing these interventions. But what we're seeing in New York and these other countries is that these patients are tolerating the hypoxia. Okay, actually, you know, we will get into when we have to innovate them. But from an initial standpoint, maybe we were being a little too aggressive to bump that oxygen saturation up. And I don't mean we're not trying to bump it up. We are trying to bump it up with these techniques that I'm going to ask you about here, but not just moving directly to intubation. So, why don't you just briefly go through the difference between, you know, like the high flow nasal cannula and non invasive ventilation? What does that mean?
2: All right. So, when I talk about a high flow nasal cannula, so everybody is familiar with a normal nasal cannula. We do flows of one to six liters on our adults, a little less than one on our babies. But what we're finding is that depending if you use the correct cannula which are there are specific cannulas out there several different brands i can recommend but it just kind of attenuates the flow a little bit and makes it not so turbulent so you can do higher flows through those nasal cannulas um and some of these commercial products you can do crazy flows we're seeing in the ICUs like 60 to 100 liters on our adults which seems extremely high So if you think of it in a stepwise process, so, you know, you put your patient on a nasal cannula, that's not working. You can try a non-rebreather if you want to. But for me, the next step is going to be your high flow nasal cannula. Because when I think about that, I think about, I talk about it when I talk to adult teens about it being a little bit of what I call ghetto CPAP. So you're putting a lot of high flow into their airways. And when they exhale against it, it's causing some back pressure and giving them PEEP. So we talked earlier in the podcast that we're having problems with a pressure gradient high down, like far down into their lungs. We need to help those alveoli pop open and PEEP is going to do that. So hyponasal cannula is a great way to give PEEP in a a very non-invasive and non-aggressive way to do that. And you're also giving a humongous nitrogen washout, which we always talk about. When we're pre oxiding our patients before we intubate them, doing that big nitrogen washout, we're decreasing all that dead space ventilation that is just always in your lungs. So there's oxygen readily available as soon as your lungs can accept it. So that's why I love the high flow nasal cannula.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know you get you're obviously flowing these crazy flows, which you just mentioned, like sixty liters is crazy. You know those are certain special machines that do that, and they have to add some vapor to it, some water vapor, so that they can tolerate it. But it does give the patient. Peep, and even we see, you know, we know on, on our helicopter, we use things like the ram cannula, which are you know connect to the wall oxygen mount, and those actually provide you know quote I'm quoting here if you can't see me out there quote high flow um, you know oxygen via nasal cannula, but it gives you some peep as well, which is what we're trying to do with opening up those spaces.
1: Also, Melissa, just why we have you here too for the other prehospital agencies who don't have high flow nasal cannulas or ram cannulas, can we use a regular nasal cannula? with high flow liters per minute and get the same effect?
2: Technically, no. But all 911 ambulances can do it without getting a commercial device. And that's what I did for Medivac is just institute a way for them to give high flow without having to go through that whole process of getting something FAA certified, a piece of equipment to go on that Aircraft, and we were able to institute that really quickly. We can definitely link to that, but we use the RAM cannula for our pediatric patients. And then there's just commercial um, high flow adult nasal cannulas that you can order, just like you'd order a regular nasal cannula. And then we just order a sterile water reservoir that goes with it, and that gets hooked up just like a normal nasal cannula, like on a bubbler. But you can do those higher flows, and your patient will tolerate it. But you should not be doing this without humidity, especially in our pediatric population.
1: Awesome, thank you. Also, just touch briefly for
0: people out there listening. We've, we talked about the high flow nasal cannula. We also talk about non invasive ventilation. What are What are we talking about when we say non invasive ventilation?
2: So normally, you're talking about with our EMS communities, um, like a commercial CPAP device. So I've used a couple different ones as a field paramedic. I've used a few that you can just set anywhere between five and twenty of PEEP on there for your CPAP devices, or you have those commercial devices that you just plug into the wall, flush that oxygen. And I think that the best you can get on there is 10 a peep. And then there are some agencies that can do what's called BiPAP, or where you're able to get a different inspiratory pressure and then a different expiratory pressure. And then you're really affecting ventilation and oxygenation. Whereas with CPAP, you're really just affecting oxygenation.
0: So again, when you guys are listening out there, this is totally a medical director dependent, meaning what do they want you to be using? There are a couple key things that you need to worry about with this stuff. The reason that that earlier recommendation was there to avoid high flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation was in part to protect providers. We were concerned that when you're doing those techniques that you're aerosolizing virus, and then that can cause you to become infected. And so that was the concern with that. That is a concern, and that's why it is um, medical director dependent on what you know techniques they want you to use. I would keep in mind that you should be mindful that as I turn oxygen flow up, I am increasing the risk of potentially aerosolizing particles. And that means that I have to be very well protected when I'm doing that. So even we talk about a high-flow mask, a non-rebreather mask, we place a mask over the patient, over that mask, right? To try to diffuse some of those particles that could be aerosolizing. And the providers, if they're doing that, should be wearing an N95 mask because we're worried about this being an aerosolized generating procedure. The other thing with this is if you go online and look, there's a debate as to whether the high flow nasal cannula is better or whether non-invasive ventilation is better. And that is, again, because we have limited data. So we're taking all these parameters into consideration, meaning our provider protection and how well the results work. From my personal practice, I am like you, Melissa, I reach for the high flow nasal cannula in this situation more than I do with the non-invasive ventilation. But obviously that can change as new data comes out. There's three things that I focus on for all the pre-hospital agencies that I work with and there's like three fundamental pillars that I'm focused on. The first is I want to protect the, the crew. I want to protect the providers. Number two, I want to expose as few providers as possible to the disease process. And then three, I want to do our job. I want to provide care to the community. So I'm trying to focus on those three things and it does shape the way that we decide what you know techniques we're going to use. Let's move to the patient now that we have to innovate. So we want to avoid innovation. The only people that I want to innovate with COVID-19 are people who are dying right now. Like they're going to die if I don't innovate them. And the reason that I'm going that extreme is because I know from the data if a patient gets innovated, essentially, I saw a number 86% of those patients die once they get innovated, right? Yeah. So it's a huge mortality risk when I'm innovating a patient that this patient is not going to come out of this okay. And then if they do come out of it, they have to recover from the whole ARDS thing, and that's a whole different you know podcast. But really, we're kind of saying, and, and Melissa, you mentioned this earlier in the podcast, that the reason that they're getting intubated is they're having rapid progression. They're just getting way worse, way fast. They are falling into respiratory failure, meaning either hypoxic and or hypercarbic. They're, they can't breathe anymore. Or they're having end organ damage, meaning they're having cardiac instability. They're having increased kidney, you know, function tests, all those things showing that they are not doing well. But really I want to try to avoid if at all costs intubating those patients.
2: Yeah, and that's really showing showing through even in all EMS communities that I'm seeing not just yours that they're really kind of moving away from that early intubation because that is like you just said, that is a really high risk procedure for people getting exposed and then like you said it's very high risk for the patient. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation. You're putting your EMS providers at a really high risk, and you're putting um, your patient at a really high risk of not coming off those vents. And we are seeing that in the Denver metro area, that our numbers of ventilated patients are not really going down. So once they're intubated, they're really in it for the long haul. And we're seeing, you know, cases of ECMO go up as well, meaning that, The ventilator isn't even able to do its job after a while. We're having to take over the lungs and the heart function altogether because these patients, everything is just failing. So you really run a big risk for yourself intubating them. And then is that the most prudent thing to do for the patient? I would, the data suggests right now that it's not.
0: Don't get me started on ECMO, Melissa. You know how much I love ECMO. We're,
2: I know you love ECMO. That's and a I whole, do different too. Podcast, love whole different whole different
0: podcast.
2: Um, when you start a primary ECMO team, you better call
0: me. <laughs> <So> <laughs> me too. I want to just close out here. Um, Melissa, give us three take home points that you want people to think about when they're treating uh, these sick COVID patients.
2: So the biggest one is to protect yourself. Um, nothing about which is, Nothing about these scenarios should be an emergency at this moment, which really is um, counterintuitive to the way we function. We love and we thrive in these emergency environments and adrenaline-charged environments, but we should not be charging into these people's houses and doing these procedures if you haven't protected yourself. It goes back to ENT school with BSI, seen as safe, which is also a joke we always talk about, but honestly... Our body substance isolation is number one key for us right now. And then to make sure that you are not panicking if something doesn't work is my number two thing. Just think that these patients are throwing, even our critical care providers and our critical care doctors and our pulmonologists, they're throwing them for a loop. So if something you're used to working isn't working, be prepared to switch modes and on to plan B, C, D pretty quickly. And then to my last thing is to try new things, just to talk to your other providers that you're there. Something I learned a long time ago, when whatever whatever code I'm running or um, scenario I'm in, does anybody have any other ideas? I'm not sure where to go from here, or does anybody want to try anything different? Um, Be open, because all these things that are coming out about proning people when they're on the nasal cannula, having patients prone themselves, had to be someone's idea all of a sudden, just to be open to new things and then always, always, always protect yourself.
0: So those are great points. Protect yourself. Number two, be ready to do the next thing. And I always teach this to you guys when we're doing education. I'm, I'm like, hope's not a treatment option, right? Hope is not a treatment <laughs> option, right? You yeah. need to move to the next step. And this should be in a progression, meaning a stepwise progression. It's spaced out. It's timed out. You're just going to keep moving forward. You don't all of a sudden sprint, stop, hang out for a while, talk, sprint, stop. You're just walking. You're going down the pathway of, of treatment. And then the third thing that you said take home is don't be afraid to do a team approach to this, right? Everyone needs to look around and say, hey, how can we, how can we deal with this problem that we're seeing? And I
2: think it's really awesome because that's where you're finding some of the ingenuity that comes from our respiratory therapist is that, you know, I have taken care of patients that are 23 weeks to 110 years old. And I've been doing it for almost 20 years. So um, when you're standing in a room, you need to tap into everybody's brains that are there. And I think we're really seeing the ingenuity that comes out of these respiratory therapists' brains right now. And and I'm hoping that, you know, cloning is coming back into favor for now. And I'm hoping that's an RT that threw that out there because it's always been one of my favorite therapies, but it's been really hard to push in a lot of adult ICU settings. But I have a feeling in my heart that, that that really
1: came from a respiratory therapist.
0: Well, thanks, Melissa, for coming on. We really appreciate your insight and your experience. I enjoyed talking to you.
1: You're such a wealth of knowledge. Once again, thank you so much for your time. I know you have a lot going on. You got some kiddos to homeschool. Plus lots of work stuff going on. You're in high demand. So thank you for sharing your time with us.
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, listening again. We appreciate it out there. Feel free to, um, again, send comments, questions. Hey, Melissa, anything else you want to let the people know uh, before we sign off?
2: No, just thank you for listening. And if anybody has any questions or wants to get a hold of me, you can email me at beyondthebvm at gmail.com or look for beyondthebvm at Facebook. That's my pre-hospital ventilator company if you need any more
1: education. And I've taken that class from Melissa, and I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it.
0: Beyond the BVM. Beyond the BVM with Melissa Vershman. So check that out. On my website, I have a link or a bunch of links to various COVID resources. We have a video of how to make a homemade mask that works. We have a lot of other links that will help EMS providers. So check that out at drsolvendahl.com slash COVID. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Shannon Sovendal, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine and more. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at dot com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.